Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, expound your word, and we ask that uh, you would use it to change us, that uh, you would use these words to make a difference in our lives, that we would not only be hearers of the word, but we would actually be able to apply the things that you would have us to learn uh, this morning. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. It, uh, it occurs to me, as I get older, that uh, the world is kind of moving this way and, and I'm not. Like, <laughs> I, I guess that's just part of being older. You, you know, you, you kind of get set in your ways. And, uh, you know, I noticed I have no idea how to work a Roku remote control. Uh, that has been a real learning curve for me. Before that was computers and phones and things like that that I never had to deal with until the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, but one of the things that really is confounding to me, and in my world, I'm communicating a lot with and to young people, uh, work with Young Life, is that we see the world a little differently. Uh, folks who are younger and folks like me who are older see the world a little differently. And uh, you've heard this generation characterized as postmodern or millennials or Generation XZ, who knows what generation we are in these days. I only know that the world looks different to people who come from different generations and different kind of uh, points of view. And sometimes, particularly when you are talking about things of eternal significance, we're talking about religion or things that really matter, uh, there is a bit of a disconnect that happens just because of the way we see the world differently. It's almost like being asked to play basket, being invited to play basketball, and you get on the court and someone says, oh, by the way, uh, there are no boundaries I I here. And you, oh, well, that's interesting. And then they say, oh, and we've removed the baskets at both ends. Um, and in fact, we don't really even have a ball. And, uh, and that's kind of what it feels like sometimes to me when, when we begin to engage in a discussion about things of eternal significance, when we talk about truth, when we talk about things that matter. Another thing that I think is different between the way my generation sees life and younger folks is that, uh, and maybe this is, a, is part and parcel of being Presbyterian, we tend to see things in, a, in, in terms of propositions, things that are simply true. And uh, feelings don't play into this very much. Um, that is not true for this generation. It's all about how we feel. Things are true because I believe it, because I want them to be true. You know, for me, as an older person, it, it really has to do with how can we prove that this is true? How can we know that these things are true, that they line up with truth? There's a balance, certainly, in the Scripture, I think, in the Scriptures, between what I would say is propositional truth, and then there's kind of relational or experiential truth. And praise the Lord that we see both in the Scriptures. And the problem with folks in my generation is uh, we very often have reduced our Christian experience to a bunch of propositions. How often do I actually think about the joy that I should be experiencing as being a Christian? How often do I think about really interacting with God in an honest and in a raw and in a sincere way? When you read through the Psalms, this Psalm is an, a, a great example, uh, we see that David or the others who wrote are really free to engage God in a way that is not just propositional, it's relational. And, uh, and you see things like, and to put it into kind of modern vernacular, you see the psalmist saying things like, excuse me, God, did you not notice that I'm doing a pretty good job here and things are going really badly? 
Or did you not notice that the bad guys seem to be winning? Uh, and then, and they, they can express frustration. They can express joy. I think this psalm is wonderful because it really does, I think, challenge us into an experiential um, relationship with the Lord. The word joy or rejoice uh, is used over 400 times in the Bible. So where do we get the idea that Christianity is just sort of this dull, you know, keeping rules, dreary existence? Um, you know, why would you want to be a Christian? I mean, isn't that just a bunch of rules? Um, well, I think people get, they get, honestly, they get that idea from us somehow. And, and maybe we Presbyterians are more guilty of that than anybody. Uh, it's been said that uh, the definition of the word Puritan is someone who is, a, is really worried that somewhere somebody is having fun. And, uh, but I think people get the idea from us because we don't do, I don't do, a great job of experiencing the joy of my salvation. I think we have a lot to learn about joy and about communicating that to the world. Now, even though this is about a kind of a relational focus in this psalm, I still can't, being as old as I am, I still can't resist doing this sort of in four points and making it a little bit systematic. So if you're really spiritual and you're taking notes, uh, the first point is this, that uh, there is a joy in living in right relationship with God. Let me read again verses one and two. Oh, what joy for those whose rebellion is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. It's interesting that the psalmist begins, that David begins in relational language. What joy. Have you ever been in a relationship that was difficult, where you were estranged, where you were just worried that we're not doing okay. And of course you have, we all have. Things are tense, you don't particularly want to see the person, you don't particularly want to interact with that person. It's not apparent, I think, in the English translation here, but there are actually three different words that are used here to describe the problem. Let me unpack these a little bit. Even though there are three different words that are used, there is this, this kind of the same point is emphasized each time. God has intervened and God has done what we could not do. And because of that, we should be glad. We should be joyful. So there are three, uh, basically three words here. The first one says, oh, what joy for those whose rebellion is forgiven. Do you ever think of sin as rebellion? That's probably a more relational term than I would have chosen. I think of sin as doing bad things, right? I mean, it's stuff. It's, it's things that we do that, that God would not be happy about. But here, the very first term that's used is rebellion. What joy for those whose rebellion is forgiven. Rebellion has the connotation of really offending someone or breaking a relationship of trust. Now, if you have children, you understand this, that, that when bad things are happening with your children, when they're being disobedient, really, the, the thing that bothers you the most is not so much the thing they did, it's the attitude behind it. It's the idea that you knew this was a bad thing and you did it anyway. And again, a pro tip for those of you who are living in a household, you know, under, under someone's authority, um, that's really the, the root of what's happening when your parents are not happy with you. It has less to do with the thing you did and more to do with this idea of rebellion. And it's no less true for us with God. 
R.C. Sproul once called sin cosmic treason. John Stott said, sin has been described in terms of getting rid of the Lord in order to put ourselves in his place. Uh, Mill Bruner once summed it up very well. He said, sin is defiance, arrogance, and the desire to be equal with God, the assertion of human independence over and against God. Treason, basically. So that's the first word that's being used here. The second one, it says, uh, whose sin is put out of sight. In that case, this word means faulty actions, the things that you and I think of generally when we think about sin, um, which, by the way, doesn't play that well today when everybody sort of gets to decide what's right and what's wrong. But clearly the scriptures set, a, set apart that there are things <laughs> that offend God, that there is a cosmic sense of right and wrong that is enduring. In fact, David in Psalm 22, just a little before this, he talks about sin and he says, against you and you only have I sinned. This, <laughs> this after he committed adultery and murder, two things that are very personal, obviously against people, and he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. When we disobey, we are actually not only committing sins against people, uh, but against God. These are things that are right and wrong. So that's the second term. And then the third term where the psalmist says, whose record is cleared from sin, that word literally means crookedness, going astray, moving in an unprofitable direction. We spent uh, about 30 years living in New Jersey in kind of a quintessential suburb, and we moved to Harrisonburg, Virginia in 2007, I guess it was. And uh, not long after we moved there, my wife was driving home one night, and there was a cow in the middle of the highway. And uh, that's not, th that was unusual to us. We didn't see a lot of cows in suburban New Jersey. Uh, that was not uncommon in Virginia. And so she called the police and said, uh, by the way, there's a cow in the road here. And they said, oh yeah, you know, it wanders off from time to time. We'll, we'll take care of it. And nobody was terribly worried about it. Cows are not terribly rebellious. What they do is they sort of nibble their way to being lost. Like, you know, well, that looks a little better than where I am right now. And, well, this looks even better. You know, and pretty soon they're outside the fence. And, you know, crookedness, this idea of going astray. Either way, whether it's intentional, it's rebellion, uh, or whether it's things that we do, or whether it's just crookedness moving in an unprofitable direction, all these words are used, and all of these things are an offense against a holy God. But what has God done? The psalm tells us, my rebellion has been forgiven, lifted, carried away. The relationship is restored. My sin is put out of sight, literally covered up, can't see it. It's no longer an offense. It's not a problem. My record has been cleared from crookedness, a change in status. God doesn't regard us as sinful any longer when we have this relationship with him. Is that not a cause for joy? I had a situation when I was young. I was first on Young Life staff in New Jersey, and uh, there was a man who had moved into the area director role in the city where I used to live and had taken over for a guy that was a, a real hero to me. And so I instantly didn't like him because he could never be as good as my former director. I didn't know this guy very well, but I just wasn't going to say nice things about him. And in fact, I talked a little trash about him to somebody and uh, said some things that were not kind. And that got back to him. 
Uh, and so I'm sitting at my office in, in my office in New Jersey, and Lee calls me from Maryland on the phone, and he says, uh, hey, uh, Jim, I heard that you said this and this and this, and I, I, to this day, I remember exactly where I was. It was 44 years ago, and I, and I remember the phone call, everything about it, because, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, I was dead to rights, and, uh, and all I could do was say, you're right, I did. I'm sorry. It was stupid. It was immature. Uh, I would just ask you to forgive me. And he said, sure, absolutely. You know, I just wanted to bring it up and, you know, the air is cleared. I forgive you. It's fine. About five years later, we were someplace and uh, I told him that, uh, I, you know, I've used that story and I really appreciated you forgiving me. And he said, what, what was that? And I, and I told him the story. He said, I don't, I don't even remember that. And uh, and I still know Lee to this day. And over the years, I mentioned this every now and then to him that I use it in sermons and things like that. And, uh, and he said, Jim, I have no recollection of that whatsoever. And I think it's because he genuinely forgave me and put it out of sight. It was gone. It was over. The relationship was restored. And as scared as I was to see him again after that conversation that we had had, because he was able to forgive me, the relationship was completely restored. God does not want us to simply know that you're forgiven. He wants us to feel that we are forgiven. And if we feel it, why wouldn't we live like it? Why wouldn't we live in a way that's joyful? Martin Luther has been quoted as saying, sin boldly. <laughs> I, that's not exactly the quote, uh, sin boldly. It, it, it sounds really good, but, but that's not exactly what he said. Here's what he did say. Martin Luther said, God does not save people who are only fictitious sinners. Be a sinner and sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly, for he is victorious over sin, death, and the world. Don't worry about it. We've been forgiven. Live boldly. Well, the second point here is the uselessness of living in rebellion. David says, when I refused to confess my sin, I was weak and miserable. I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed my sin to you. I stopped trying to hide them. And I said to myself, I'll confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. My guilt is gone. Therefore, let the godly confess their rebellion to you while there is time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. We really have a choice. We can choose to confess our rebellion and our sin, or we can choose to remain in it. it it's really up to us. But David wants us to know there's a price to be paid for remaining in that state of rebellion. Look at the words that he uses to describe what life is like when you are not in a proper relationship with God. He says, weak miserable, groaning all day long, feeling God's hand heavy upon him, strength evaporating like water in the summer heat. Why? Because we were created for a right relationship with our Creator. And, and God gives us the freedom to not live that way, to deny that reality, but it doesn't change the facts. It's like denying gravity. You can climb up on a roof or a bridge and jump off and say, I don't believe in gravity, but at that point, it really doesn't matter what you believe. It is, it is a fact. 
And we can live as if it doesn't really matter if I have a relationship with the Lord or not. And I can be kind of happy. And, and I'm not saying that we're all going to be miserable every day of our lives. But it is a fact that when we are not in a right relationship with our Creator, life is simply different. It's not the way it was meant to be lived. I think we behave sometimes as if our opinion really matters on this. Most folks would agree that uh, you can't decide that 2 plus 2 equals 5 and then expect that you're going you're to pass a math test. That just doesn't, it just doesn't work. So why, why would our opinion matter about spiritual things? We can refuse to acknowledge and confess our sin, but we will pay consequences. And that's what, that's what David found out. Being estranged from God just makes life useless. When uh, I, I have my two older daughters went to Christopher Newport University in Virginia, and the president <coughs> at that time uh, was Paul Tribble. He was on the Young Life National Board. He's a wonderful believer. His wife is a, a really strong Christian who had a huge impact on one of my daughters. And uh, Tribble at one time was speaking to a, a group of leaders at the school, the presidential leadership program. And uh, he made a comment, being a Christian, of course he's the president of a state university, but he made a comment that uh, unless you have a relationship with the Lord, you really can't expect that you're going to be successful in life. And a young man raised his hand and he said, um, President Tribble, I, I'm an atheist, and uh, are you saying that I'm never going to be successful? And President Tribble said, you know, I know you, and I wrote your uh, recommendation to law school, and I know that in terms of, you know, worldly values, you'll probably be very successful. You're a fine young man, you're very bright, but I stand by my statement that if you are not rightly related to your Creator, you will never really experience all that life has to offer. It, it's like getting an airplane and having your pilot's license and then just driving it around the parking lot. You know, like living life in two dimensions instead of this third dimension that, that you're actually entitled to, that you were created for. Why, why would you have an airplane and a pilot's license and then just drive it on the highway? It makes no sense whatsoever. It's not just a lack of productivity. It, it creates trouble in our lives. Our guilt is never dealt with. Lack of purpose. Fulfillment never really being achieved. Um, we can choose rebellion over obedience, and it does gain us a measure of control in our lives, but we'll miss out. Now, what's interesting in the psalm is at some point David had a change of heart. We don't really exactly know why, but at some point he made a decision to get it right and confess his rebellion. It looks like he's having a little kind of a dialogue with himself, and he says, finally, I confessed my sins to you. Maybe he just got tired of living that way. I don't know. Maybe it was the guilt that was overwhelming him. Um, guilt is always hard to bear. But you wonder what he thought the result would be if he would confess. So many folks today have a warped opinion, I think, of what it would look like if I actually got engaged with God, if I confessed my sin, if I acknowledged who I am and my need for him, what would happen? Would God be like, yeah, finally, okay, super. You know, it took you this long, okay, you sit over here, and, you know, in a while we'll see if we get you to the, to the adult table, you know. No, that's not at all what happened. We have this idea sometimes that God's going to forgive us in a half-hearted way, or we're going to have to do some kind of, you know, uh, we're going to have to do chores for a while, you know, to somehow earn our way or to make it up or to somehow, that's not it at all. 
The scriptures are clear. Like a loving parent, God waits for us to come to our senses and confess. David says, I stopped trying to hide them. Why do we continue to try to hide the truth? You know, again, with our children, we so often know exactly what they've done. And then we ask them the question, did you do this? And they say, no, I didn't do the, you know, did you? And we know they did. We know they did. And we're dying inside, hoping, wishing that they would just acknowledge what it was that they did. We're not trying to, this pro tip, again, for those of you who are living in, in a household under the authority of parents, this is a pro tip. Your parents are not nearly as interested in trying to figure out what happened or trying to figure out what the punishment is going to be. What they want to do is restore the relationship. They want you to admit, yes, that was bad, I know it was bad, and, and then we can move on. Parents want restoration, they don't want punishment, you know that. It's no different with our Heavenly Father. He's not just like, okay, I guess I'll forgive you, super. You know, you're going to, you just have to do some chores and pay for the, not at all. It's a complete clearing of the slate. It's something that should produce joy for us. It certainly produces joy for the Lord, in the Lord, when we confess, when we step towards him instead of away from him. And by the way, what's in view here is, is repentance. It's, it's more than just saying, yeah, I did that and I'm sorry. Um, illustration I've used, you know, let's say you, you get on the train in Raleigh, there's still a train I think that runs north and south out of Raleigh, and uh, you want to go to New York, and uh, so you, you take a seat and, you know, the train starts moving, and uh, you've been in, in on the train for about 45 minutes or an hour, and uh, it begins to stop to let some more passengers on, and, and the conductor says, uh, okay, uh, Columbia, South Carolina, all aboard. And you're thinking, wait, I was going to New York. I, I must be going the wrong way. So you get up out of your seat and you find a seat that's facing the other way. You go across the aisle and you sit down, and you're facing this way. And you say, okay, great, now I'm heading to New York. Well, you may be facing New York, but your butt's still going to Florida. And, and that's, that's, I think, the difference between repentance and confession. We can acknowledge what we've done wrong, but repentance means <laughs> I, have to, I have to know I'm going the wrong way, and I get up, and I get off of this train, and I get on another train that's actually moving in a different direction. And I think that's what's in view here. It's not simply, yeah, I did it, you know, I did something that was wrong, and then we just kind of go back to the way we lived before. It's interesting, David says, it's, he almost sounds surprised, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. It's so easy. He sounds surprised. It's easy. It's not cheap. It costs Jesus a death on the cross in order to take that penalty for us to forgive us. But it is easy. It is easy. It's so encouraging. In verse 6, he says, Therefore, let the godly confess their rebellion. And he doesn't say, Let the sinful, let those sinful people confess their rebellion. Let the godly for, uh, confess their rebellion. Folks, you and I need to confess our rebellion to if we're going to experience this joy that God wants us to have. If you're hearing this message this morning and you're thinking, I know some really bad people who need to hear this, um, you, you may be missing the point. This is for you and me too. If we've given our life to Christ, we are His and we are forgiven. But there is still a relational aspect. There is still joy that we won't experience if we are not actively 
engaged in confession, repentance, restoring, moving and stepping back towards God. You may belong to God, but it does not necessarily mean that your relationship is always terrific. I was adopted as an infant, and there were plenty of things I did over the years that were dishonorable to my parents, that, uh, that hurt the relationship, but, but nothing I could have ever done or ever did that would have meant that I was no longer part of the family. I was adopted. As believers, we are adopted into a family. That is eternal security. No matter what we do, it doesn't change that. But there's still a relational aspect. David knows God's nature and he trusts him and he's no longer afraid to turn to God and run for, to him for help. There is a, a great turn of a phrase in here. You notice he said, uh, he said, I stopped trying to hide my sin. And then a little while later he says, you are my hiding place. Isn't that interesting? First he's trying to hide his sin and then he says, now you are my hiding place. What a complete turn of events here. Now there's a shift of gears. The third point here is just the certainty of God's plan, verses 8 and 9. Um, it says, the Lord, the Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I'll advise you, watch over you. Don't be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and a bridle to keep it under control. Does that seem a little out of place? We've been talking about relationship, restoring the relationship, forgiveness, repentance, um, you know, joy. And now it's, there's kind of this shift and he says, uh, you know, I'm going to guide you in the way that you should go. Don't be like a, like a senseless horse or a mule. I don't think they're out of place because this is always, it's been about God and not about us right from the beginning. It's what God is willing to do and what God has done on our behalf, his love and his forgiveness. We are rebellious and sinful. How are we ever going to come to a place where we would seek his love and his forgiveness. It's God who brings us to that place. It's God who guides us to that place, draws us to that place. So why would God be content after that to just want, let us wander aimlessly and not provide guidance or instruction? If you are in a relationship with God, he will guide you. He absolutely will, that's a given. The only thing that's up for grabs is whether you and I will listen. We have a choice to continue to act in this kind of bad habit, this rut of rebellion, or we can submit our will to his. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. That's a great image. A horse will go where the, where the rider wants it to go. The only question is how much discomfort it's going to endure between now and when it gets there. When I was in high school and college, I dated a, a girl who had horses. And that's about all I know about horses was a couple of years of, of dating this girl and, and riding. And um, I, one thing I do know is it cannot be real comfortable to have this bit in your mouth and have somebody pulling on it all the time to, to make you turn right or turn left. That, that really can't be a lot of fun. And that's the image that we get here in the scriptures. God will guide us. It's just a question of whether we will listen, whether we will walk in obedience. Uh, one other illustration, when uh, we lived in New Jersey, we had a golden retriever, and they are smart, and they want to please people, right? If you have a golden retriever, you know. Um, and uh, Casey was super smart and easily trained, and we, from the time she was a puppy, we really never even had her on a leash. She'd just say, you know, 
heel and the dog would just walk alongside. And back in the day, this was probably four, 35, 40 years ago, um, I ran a marathon. I was, I was training for a marathon. And uh, the dog would run with me. And so in the morning, we'd run five, ten miles, and uh, I never had the dog on a leash. We would run across highways, streets, past school bus stops with kids, and, and the dog would never leave my side. And uh, if I saw a squirrel, I'd say, go, and she'd run, you know, and I'd say, Casey, come back, and she'd come back. And uh, at the same time, in our neighborhood, there was a lady up the street who had a dog that was this <laughs> ugly, thick thing with little short legs and a huge body. And, and you would hear her in the morning taking this dog for a walk, or the dog taking her for a walk. You'd hear this, <laughs> and she had this dog on a leash, and she's going down the road, you know, the street like this with the dog on two legs pulling her down the street. And uh, if you let that dog go, I mean, clearly it would run off, it would get hit by a car, it would bite someone, who knows what would happen. Which dog would you say was more obedient, my dog or that dog? My dog, right? Which dog had more fun going for a walk? There is freedom in obedience. I, again, I don't know where we get the idea that somehow following Jesus, that, that submitting our will to him is going to result in this just like eating oatmeal for the rest of my life. You know, I mean, that's not going to be any fun. Do what God wants me to do. You know, who would want to do that? And somehow, I think because you and I don't do an adequate job of communicating joy and freedom that we find in obedience, we've convinced people that that's true. Where else would they get the idea? They're not getting it from the scripture. I, that image to me, again, of, of the two dogs is such a, such a great one in my mind that, like, what, what is it that I am communicating here? What is it that I really believe about following the Lord? It really should be a joyful thing to follow the Lord. Well, the last thing here, the joy of the forgiven. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad. All you who obey him, shout for, for joy. All you whose hearts are pure. You know, the postmoderns don't have it all wrong. It is about feelings. It is about joy. The, the Psalms are full of feeling words, and this one is full of of words of, of joy. It's a command. We're commanded to be joyful. Rejoice. Shout for joy. We Presbyterians don't run a lot of danger of being over-emotional. <laughs> but, but I hope you'll take the time, sometime, to, to really think about, as, as I have to, do I see my Christian life as propositional? These things are simply true? Or is this something I'm living and experiencing? Perhaps this morning you're not relating to this sermon at all because there's another level at which you haven't really experienced this joy. It's, it's not because you won't let yourself experience it. It's because you've never really received the forgiveness that produces this joy. And that's an invitation that's open and available to us today, now, and every day, that we can simply go to the Lord, say, I know who I am, <laughs> I know what I've done, I know who you are, I want your forgiveness. I want to get off of that train, turn around, get on the other train. I want to walk in obedience, and I want to experience joy. And he invites us into that relationship. Why would we not do that? Uh, or perhaps you have received it, but it's simply you haven't really experienced that kind of joy because maybe you don't think you're that bad. 
if, uh, if you don't think Jesus needs to do much for you, then you're not going to be terribly grateful. You're not going to be terribly joyful about it. If, uh, if I bought you a keychain as a gift, you might say, hey, thanks, that's a nice keychain. Um, if I bought you an oil change for your car, you know, 50, 60 bucks, you might send me a thank you note, because that's kind of a bigger thing, right? Wow, thanks, Jim, that, that's awesome. If I bought you a new car, lifetime supply of gas, a new house and a three-car garage to put that car in, uh, my guess is you'd be a little more than just, hey, thanks, here's a thank you note. You'd, you'd be pretty fired up about that. You would tell other people about that. You would be joyful. What is it that you and I believe Jesus has actually done for us? And, and what is it that we believe about who we are? You see, I, I really think my experience of joy in the Lord is indexed to those two things. Where I think I have been and what I really am and what God has truly done for me. Steve Brown, great PCA pastor, once said, uh, you know, the, the bad news is you're a whole lot worse than you think you are. And the, and the good news is God is a whole lot more forgiving than you can ever imagine. So this morning, if you're sitting here and you've never really yielded your life to Jesus and received that gift of grace, there's not going to ever be a better time to do that. We're told in John 3, to all who received him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, relationship, children. And that's worth celebrating. And for all of us, don't leave God's love as something propositional. Get excited. Go tell someone. Live like someone who is forgiven and delivered. You know, I, when we first started coming to Trinity Park, one of the first things that my wife commented on was these young folks who, who show up every week and, uh, you know, good-looking young men and women who, who come to church. And she was like, that's just so impressive. You know, these kids, they come to church and, you know, they're worshiping together. And I... I agree, you know, having worked with young people for a long time, I know that the potential you guys have to change your class, your school, your world, because you're doing this together. You're living life together. And I, there's no possibility that people in your school are looking at you and going, I wouldn't want to be like that. I mean, these, these folks are cool. They're awesome. They're fun. They shave their heads at camp. I mean, they're, <laughs> that should be true for all of us in our neighborhood, in our workplace, that we get together and we just enjoy life together. And it's something that the world wants and it's something that the world needs and it's something that the world desperately wants to buy into if they only understood how good this news really is. So live into this joy that God sets before us and tell someone what good news this really is. Will you pray with me? Father, I'm just grateful this morning for all that you have done for me, for each of us, that uh, you have rescued us, you've removed this sin, this treason, the things we've done, the crookedness that we experience. You're willing to set that all aside and, uh, and embrace us like children who you love unconditionally. Father, I, I pray that we would experience that, that we would live that joy that it would be apparent to this world and that others would be drawn to you because of the way that we live. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.